we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording from, whose culture includes a rich tradition of storytelling, the Gamaragal and Gadigal people, and their elders past and present. I'm Yumi Steins, and if you're new to this podcast, it's here we celebrate people who exist outside of the mainstream. People who push the limits of what motherhood means, who fight racism, break generational cycles, and who make huge waves, often as the first of their kind, whether it be as a tech creative, an environmentalist, or a drag queen. Today, I'm talking to Queen Kong, a drag artist and activist who was already a star when she cracked the mainstream through season two of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. And dags, like, oh my God, I'm going to KFC, leave me alone, don't take pictures of the like, can we get a photo? I'm like, no. no. It's recording day. When I see Queen Kong arrive in the SBS lobby, she's ostentatiously gorgeous, tall and commanding. I immediately recognise her as the day's guest and feel kind of proud to be seen kissing this queen as we meet and head into the studio. We're going to hear more about how Queen embraces her female side and her own form of motherhood, leadership and kick-ass advocacy. But first, let's get the origin story because drag queens do not arrive on planet Earth fully formed. What I'm seeing here is this very flamboyant, very beautiful attention-grabbing character. Oh, thank you. Full of charisma. <laughs> but what were you like as a youngster? I think I was always those things. Like, growing up, I was always very clearly a performer and, like, I was a show-off. Before Queen Kong, there was young Thomas Fonua, born in New Zealand to parents who had moved from the Polynesian islands. At home, the gender lines were clear. Women in the kitchen cooking, men outside drinking. The sass has always come from my feminine side, you know, because I was always in the kitchen with my mum and my aunties and my grandmother, always cooking, always laughing. Yeah. You know, we got to be myself, but outside with the men, I was always like, I hate these people. Like, <laughs> I hate it out here. I don't want to drink cover. It's like dirt water. Like, God. So, yeah, it was, it was always really weird growing up. Here's something we're going to understand a bit more by the end of today's episode. Performing your gender, and by that I mean acting like a real man and so on, that performance is policed by your peers. From being abused or teased for being too girly to being bashed for wearing a so-called gay shirt, men in particular are violently policed by other men if their gender performance doesn't sit neatly within the binary. The women in my family have always, and I think in most specific environments, the women have always been a lot more understanding of what we were pre-colonial, pre-Bible. They had, had more of an innate understanding based on how they would feel they could understand that this is my child and I want to love my child. I'm not going to stop them from being what they are. I'm going to protect them. And there was never a conversation about queerness, but it was always a conversation about not being afraid to be who you were. So there were two columns, the fierce female and the male. Explain what the men were like. Oh, look, men were always drinking. They were always like in the round and there was always jokes, but it was always at, like at someone else's expense. And generally speaking, it was always about me. Like, there was always an issue. You know, my my memories of those times are always just, like, every time I was outside, I knew I was not safe. Like, I was going to get picked on or I was going to, someone was going to say something about me, which would mean that my dad would be embarrassed and then he'd take it out on me afterwards. That threat of violence, retribution for being too gay, too feminine, too unusual, was countered by a kind of invisible force field. 
I think externally I look very strong and powerful, but I think the thing that really has carried me through all my years has been my spirit, which is very feminine and it, it's loving. It listens and it's not afraid to feel. That energy has always been the thing that's gotten me through some of the hardships in my life. I think when I think back to my childhood and moments where this was always like something that would, it was like a shield. That power was also manifested in a real person, Nana. Because my Nana was like the matriarch of our family, because she accepted me, there was nothing that those people could do until she died, you know, so she just protected me and looked out for me like crazy since Mm. I was a baby. She knew since I was a baby. I think my Nana was my first fag hag. Like, she (laughs) literally was like the OG fag hag. Like, she set the blueprint for all of my strong women that are in my life now. I'm like, if you're not like my Nana, then get out of my life. Like, <laughs> just protect her. I've never heard anybody call their grandma a fag <laughs> Yeah, but she'll probably smack me if she's still alive. Like, <laughs> but yeah. Nana's advocacy was, at times, ferocious. One particular memory from childhood stands out. So at school, there was one day I was, my Nana got called into the office and it was about seven, I think. Me and one of the boys in my class were playing around and we were trying to kiss each other, just being idiots in school. And this principal pulled me aside and isolated me and was yelling at me in the office. And my nana walked into him calling me a pervert and saying, you know, like, because he knew I was, like, queer. The other boy was just fucking around, but he knew that I was the gay one. So he's berating me. And the way that my nana absolutely tore this man to shreds from the head to the toes, like, you know, absolutely defending a seven-year-old being yelled at by a fucking 50-something-year-old white man telling me that everything that I am is wrong. I remember looking at my nana going, oh, yeah, <laughs> get him. Like, get this motherfucker. Like, I'm so, so sick of this man. Like, you know what I mean? And my nana had, like, broken English. So she was like, because she was from Samoa. So she had broken English and listening to her articulate herself so eloquently with so many swear words was just the best <laughs> the icing on the cake. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that woman was the one. That's when she started telling me, you're more, you're not different. There's nothing wrong with you. So, So I think that kind of passion and that lack of fear to put yourself at the forefront of something that might be received really badly. I've never had that bone in my body, yeah. Far out. I've got goosebumps thinking about your grandma. Oh, she was the one. What's and her, her name? was Alofa. Alofa. And Alofa is a Samoan word for love, which is, she was, she's that in all forms, like unconditional love, but tough love. Like that was a strong woman. Definitely a, a rock for all of us, our whole family. Nana saw Queen's queerness and gathered it into her bosom of unspoken, unconditional acceptance. When I think back to it now, like, I never really understood it because um, I didn't know what she was saying to me, but I knew I was different. And I think rather than me thinking different was wrong, because I, th- I feel like that's why she would say, no, you're more, it's because she knew that the word different in the way that I was receiving it was like that something was wrong with me. You know, so she's like, no, 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 you're more. You know, you are more, and I am way, way more. So I think it was more to try and reinforce some form of like value in what I was rather than fear and, you know, what people think of it, you know, which was definitely what was happening outside, you know, outside the house. Outside the house and back in Tonga, the Fanua family name was connected to the monarchy. Queen's father was accustomed, therefore, to a certain level of respect. He was kind of a big deal. But that changed when he moved to New Zealand, where Pacific Islanders often experienced racism. They were just treated like absolute mud. The media was sort of pushing that where we came from was densely populated by Pacific Islanders and Māori people. It was like a drain on the economy because, you know, the perception was that we were having way too many kids that we could afford. And, like, 
you either go into the rugby field or you work in a factory, which was the thing my dad never wanted us to become. A limiting stereotype. You're either a well-paid rugby star or you work in a factory. As it happened, young Thomas was a talented rugby player. At 16, he was on track to play for the New Zealand men's under-19s rugby team, which is seen as a crucial first step towards playing for the All Blacks. This was a huge source of pride for his dad. It was also the birthplace of what would eventually become Thomas's drag name. So the name Queen Kong comes from the rugby field, again, because I was very tough, you know, and also I was just very feminine. So it was initially an insult, but I loved it. And the boys on my team loved it too, because it's like the name just captured everything that I was really feminine, but also a massive gorilla like, and so unafraid. Yeah. This young queen saw another pathway outside of the binary of rugby or factory. He wanted to be a dancer. So to be a dancer, my dad was just like, the fuck? Like, <laughs> what? Where was this in the, like, in, in the plan? Absolutely not. Like, you know, not in the guidebook? Yeah, not in the guidebook. What do I do? Because he's going, there's so many islanders everywhere in rugby. You're going to make a good career. You make good money. You know, you be respected. And so, you know, everything that we were raised under was based on his fear of the world. The thing that he was always worried about was people are going to laugh at you. They're going to laugh at you. Are you ready to be made fun of? You know, can you imagine an islander wearing tights? And I'm like, yeah, like, that's hot. Like, I want to wear tights. I want to show my thighs. You know, I always had this arrogance inside me when I was younger that by the time I was at that point, I just went, no, I, I deserve to do this and I want to do this. I've got the support of all of the women in my family. And those women are the ones that taught me how to be a man, you know, in the best way. How did your dad react when you said you weren't going to join the rugby team? He stopped talking to me. Yeah. I lost touch with my father for about two, three years because I wanted to pursue a career in the arts. She auditioned and Queen was offered a two-year apprenticeship at Black Grace, one of New Zealand's leading contemporary dance companies. At 16, Queen was the youngest person to join the dance company and her sister and freshly divorced mum stepped up to support her. My little sister dropped out of school so that she could help my mum support us so that I could go and become a full-time artist. And they did that without even consulting me. They just decided. My sister was really young. She's three years younger than me. She just went, because it was very rare for anyone like us, where we came from, to get an opportunity like that at that time. Make sure you stay till the end of this episode, because you're going to hear what became of Queen's heroic little sister. Supported by the women in her life, Queen's dance career took off. She toured Europe, Asia, North America and Canada. Queen took up a position as a faculty member at Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity in Canada and later joined the Australian Dance Theatre in 2015. But as one of only a few dancers of Samoan and Tongan descent in contemporary dance, Queen found herself always having to educate. You said that in the dance environment there weren't many people that looked like you. What do you mean? Do you mean big and strong? Brown, yeah. Brown. Oh, my God. Like, especially in contemporary dance. Like, that so was is it all was... skinny white people? Oh, definitely. You know, I, I think in many spaces I was always the first, the first Pacific Islander, first brown person, person of colour. Mm. What you're saying is there was nobody like you ahead of you forging the path. At all. No Ever. Blueprint. Yeah, no blueprint at all. Can you think of any examples of when you had to call things out? Oh, yeah. So, for example, like um, being made to have my hair dreaded, um, wearing like a costume that was very indicative of my traditional costuming. 
the style of dancing being very like YouTubing the haka and then going, oh, I've got this idea of this really primitive like chanting that would be really like quite like confronting for the audience. Would love for you to task this. Why don't you do it? Like just things like this that are very like on the nose yeah. and wanting to allude at something because of my skin color and not necessarily doing the education behind it yeah. to, to know what the protocol is to use that kind of material, if that makes sense. Well, it sounds a bit disrespectful. Mm, so disrespectful and just, what's well, just exoticizing, you know, and ticking boxes. And so there was always a lot of responsibility walking in, being the representation of what that means, you know, and being the person creating that space so that people coming up under me could have opportunities like that. You know, bringing up those conversations, never they were never received and never heard until Black Lives Matter oh, happened. Really? Yeah. And by that point, I had enough of the industry and decided to retire from dancing. I should point out that the person with the dance career was Thomas, dancing as a man. At this stage, Queen was waiting to emerge. Queen's always been a part of me, but I don't think I was ever really introduced to her until I started doing drag. Once I started putting on makeup and like hair, it was the first time I saw what my strength looks like, which is inherently like divine femininity. And that was something that I struggled with coming up, um, especially in my household. She's always been a part of like my artistry because I'm a professional dancer. But even within the arts, I felt really limited because I was a male dancer doing male roles. I think Queen was always a part of me that I just ignored for the longest period of time. Here's how Queen finally unleashed that energy. So it was a Halloween variety show. And up to that point, me and my one of my best friends in the company, we would go to the, the one gay bar in Adelaide pretty much every weekend and just judge the drag queens really relentlessly. Like, oh my God. Why are they? Why don't they do anything? There's some of the most beautiful looking drag queens still to this day, but we were just very much in the toxic mindset of a drag race fan of knowing everything as an armchair expert of the show. <laughs> but also, you're a fantastic dancer, yeah, we'll and you have that yeah. actual training in that. Absolutely, so that, that, totally. I mean, you've got a little bit of credibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we're looking at it, going, "Oh, I could do that. I could do that." And we have been saying that for about two, three years. I could do that, and to the point where my best friend was like, "There's a variety show." I'm going to sign this up and we're going to finally do drag. And I was like, I don't think we can do it. Like, what are people going to think? Oh my God. Because it was also really confronting because I'm physically, I'm like, you know, people say I'm gorgeous as a man, but I, I was always really scared of people looking at me like as like, fem- like at my femininity because I used to think that it was really off-putting. Um, and so the idea of getting into drag was just massive. We didn't learn how to do our makeup because we thought we were amazing. And so we literally tried to do our makeup on the day. We could not have gone more wrong. Um, it took about three hours. We had like Maybelline and Max Factor nice. and the chemist. Yeah. Which is like, cover girl doesn't cover boy, listen. <laughs> <laughs> At all. Like, we looked like, uh, we, we, we thought we looked like Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss. We looked like their fathers. Um <laughs> But I just remember like looking at myself, I had bought this brand new wig. It was like a Beyonce shake and go wig. I had a horrible pair of lashes on, like a corset on. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and just like feeling gorgeous. And also just going, I can't leave the house. I'm so scared. People are going to judge me. <laughs> that was the, the biggest thing. Like, yeah. And so meeting her for the first time, I was just like, well, there's no turning back. It is impossible to overstate the courage it took to get herself up on that stage. I remember feeling so nervous about performing, even though there was only like five people in the audience. Performing and just feeling absolutely like myself and super overwhelmed at how I was feeling. And being seen, you know, in that kind of way was really confronting. It was probably the best performance I think I'd ever felt or done. 
you know, in my whole career by that point. So I wanted to do it again and I caught the itch. And from that point, I was practicing my makeup every day. And I, I didn't even think about drag race as an option. I, I, I just was addicted to the feeling, like feeling like whole, you know, and feeling like as an artist, I was like, oh my God, I have this whole other side to my toolkit that I've just like left unutilized. Like there's magic here. I need to figure out what it is. Do you feel that you embody a different sort of body? Yeah, well, like, uh, I think the thing is, it's, I've, I've still got the same body, but it's like, you know, the thing about the the male body that is like, again, I can lead with power that's like all superficial muscle and just like solid, you know, intimidating physical flesh. I think the thing about drag, once I'm in that character, people see me in a different light and it's softer, you know, which is a lot more welcoming. And I think the power is a lot more um, nurturing. I don't know, there's, there's a, a lot more responsibility for the space that I share with people you know, and making sure that I welcome people first and that they feel safe with me. I think that's the power that I have and that I prefer to have rather than out of drag, which I don't necessarily get the same sort of reception, especially with people that don't know me. You know what I mean? I still get people following me into this supermarket, checking my bags. Like, yeah, right. You know, the other day I went into, into Duty Free to buy a little Versace necklace for a friend of mine and was absolutely berated by the person behind the counter going, do you know how much that costs? Like... That oh, wow. shit still happens. And I was like, yeah, I'll take two. Like, and your mom is a hoe. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, it's like, but when I'm in drag, that kind of stuff just never happens, you know? Like, yeah, right. I don't necessarily see what people see, you know, when I'm in drag. Yeah. But I feel it when I'm out of drag. What I'm understanding is that in drag, this divine feminine energy that is allowed to be expressed is one that gathers people in, nurtures welcomes and makes people feel safe. Is it only natural then that from feminine energy a form of motherhood should flow? A drag house, if you don't know, is a form of mentorship where the older drag performer acts as a mother guide and mentor to the younger children of the house. I run a drag house called the House of Kong where I've got a bunch of drag kids and you know, people always ask me, because it is really tiresome work, because you are acting as a mother to some right. of these kids who don't know how to receive love or receive, like, accountability or be held responsible for things. When I was growing up, like, you know, I had lots of friends that were kicked out of home or just beaten relentlessly until they, you know, try to beat the gay away or the trans away. And so when I moved to South Australia, the, like, when I started performing, because I was never really embraced by the scene there, I had to create my own events. And so people would come to my shows, then naturally these kids that were really displaced who might have been kicked out of home would just come and flock to the show because they were safe. It was a free show. They could watch drag, like live around a community that's really positive and naturally they'd just stick around and, you know, I'd notice them after time and be like, what's your story? What have you been doing? Mm. You know, most of these kids are going through, you know, living on the street or through sex work because it's the only kind of resources that they had. It was really an opportunity for me to create a community or be a part of a community that could help, yeah, these kids. These kids are often misfits, outside of binaries of gender, outcasts sometimes into poverty, and the radical acceptance found within a drag house or the drag scene can be the first stepping stone toward belonging. It's just teaching them how to, how to contribute, you know, and then give back. You know, I, I used to remember some of my early kids coming in getting their first paychecks and then seeing them pay tax and like what those kinds of little things actually meant to them because they're doing them for themselves, you know, and seeing them realize that they're capable, that they are worthy and that anything that they want, they can get. I've gotten four of my kids through uni. 
Um, lots of them have stable jobs. I just know that like I would be nothing without people that helped me be what I am. But unless they had that kind of positive reinforcement or someone, you know, being like the Nana Alofa version of like, you know, cussing someone out for being a fuckwit. It's like, if I can make an impact on those 38 kids' lives, knowing that they'll probably go out and make their own drag houses, like inevitably we're going to see a better community. And so that's the kind of way that I, I view it and want to do things. Yeah. That's so cool. So that's you being the Nana. And so do they ever feedback to you about how their lives have changed because of your influence? Oh my One of my um, first drag kids was literally about to graduate and she's going to be about, about to become a nurse, you know, and that one kid, she was probably one of my first kids, and she was kicked out of home at 16, um, started doing drag with me and was really fucking great. She was like an assassin of my house. But I was really clear that drag was like the way that she was finding herself. And because I had my own epiphany when I got into drag, I was really aware of the impact that drag could have on these kids. And majority of the kids aren't drag performers, you know. They start in drag and it sort of helps them to go, oh my God, you know, I'm trans. Or like, I actually don't want to perform, I want to be this. You know, it's just a way for them to sort of get out of themselves to notice, you know, what they might want to do. She had a couple of interactions with, in Adelaide, like the in terms of sex work with the trans community, it's very unsafe anywhere. But, you know, the majority of the clientele was like bikies and like people that are, you know, drug fucked and absolutely you know, on the way out. So there was a couple of situations with my daughter that she was just roughed up really badly. And this was before the age of like 19. She was very young. You know, the last situation I sat with her and I was just like, we can't do this anymore. You know, it's not safe. I'm not always going to be here. I took her to coffee and we were sitting on a place in Rundle Street. And I said, what do you want to do? Like, what is it that you want to do? Because you can't be doing sex work. Yes, you're making money, but it's not a given. And it's, you're going to continue to sort of find yourself in these situations. And she went, I want to do injectables. <laughs> okay, love that. Yep, injectables, as in cosmetic fillers, plumpers, and Botox. I was like, well, maybe you could be my injectables nurse. But I was like, in order to do that, you have to go and get a nursing degree, you know? And she literally said to me, okay, well, I'm going to get a nursing degree and I'm going to own one of these shops and open up my own clinic. And so she graduates this year. Huh. Yeah, after four and a half years, five years of studying. Yeah. Great. You've got free Botox. That's what I said to her. I was like, well, look, you owe mama. Like, you need to be filler. I want filler. Like, and the threads, I want to be pulled up. I want to be so tight that if I sneeze, my forehead would combust. So, Committed to giving back, Queen got a master's degree in leadership, absorbing research that she could adopt in the House of Kong. She was particularly interested in lateral leadership which is a theory of leading and supporting community from a place of inclusion, equal footing, and arriving at decisions together. Basically, light years away from phalluses of power built on hierarchy, dominance, and derision. When the popular TV show RuPaul's Drag Race started casting their Down Under spin-off, Queen Kong was not a keen queen. I never wanted to do Drag Race. Like, I think there was, a, there was always a calling and people had asked for me to do it. Because I think people, most people know me for my over-the-top performances. Like, I am, like, the dancing queen of Australia and New Zealand, um, humbly. Um, but the reason why I felt drawn to going on the show, after watching season one and seeing how poorly production dealt with race, and especially with all the controversy that happened. Queen had concerns about the lack of rigour on the show. Like, there was no audition process and minimal screening on what the queens had done outside of the show. And one of the contestants had a history of not only just doing blackface, but mimicking and making fun of lots of POC communities. You know, she basically went to every fucking continent, <laughs> like, with makeup, you know, painted herself up. 
And lots of these acts were to mock these, you know, these cultures. And the way that they brought it up on the show, obviously it's like a delicate situation with nuance. But the thing is, is like by the point in the season that they brought it up, they had eliminated all the queens of color, which was only two on the season. And so the way that they sort of played it out was like, okay, um, this has happened. You've done blackface. I feel like we need to do and give an exercise to the community to, you know, exercise remorse. And I think remorse is important, but I also think it's really important to hold people accountable, you know, and for the person that made the mistakes that they made um, to take the full brunt of what happened. And I don't believe in council culture, but I also believe that there is a way to, um, to come back from a situation like that, you know, and after seeing how they handled that, I was like, oh, I need to go into the ring. Like, okay. And I need to go in there and like make sure and see what's wrong with the system before I sit there and cancel like everybody else. I need to see what's happening behind the cameras, see what the team looks like, you know, and the conversations around race. I want to make sure that the nuance is there and that they're hearing about it from people that actually have the lived experience rather than a romanticized version from a white lens for white people. The thing with Drag Race is that you don't get to veto the edits and... You have to show yourself out of drag. I think generally speaking, I am a private person. Like, naturally, I like to sort of keep things to myself. You know, I think, especially like when you're on a TV show like that, which is like puts you under a lens already. And you never know what the edit's going to be. But I think, yeah, being in that sort of space was really confronting, knowing that people were going to see me outside of drag. Because I used to love the anonymity, being able to do the gig get out of drag, and then no one would know that it was me that was on stage. Yeah, you could be in the same club. Literally, and no one would know. So I could go out and, you know, just have fun, whereas I knew that I was removing that sort of right. I was giving that up to go on the show. So going in there, I had the purpose and pure purpose to go and make sure that if there was conversations around race, that I was going to make sure that I not only led them, but led by example so that the queens coming up under me would have a space to be heard in the next season. Queen stepped up, allowing herself to be seen in ways she wouldn't have chosen. The payoff is that she's had an impact on the subsequent seasons of Drag Race Down Under. This season they've got seven queens of colour, which is great. A couple of people of colour in the editing room, which means that already they're going to be able to handle the storylines that these queens bring because they understand what these people are talking about. And even if they don't, they'll have a network of people that they can go this person from this background brought up this. Do you know anything about it? Like, how can we honour? You know, those conversations are so important to editing reality TV, which is not very reality, you know, based. It's just TV. Queen was a runner-up in her season of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. She has been super busy ever since. But success doesn't automatically mean acceptance. Her relationship with her father is still strained. You know, the older my father got, my grandfather got, all of these big, strong-looking men, the older they got, the more vulnerable they become. And the thing about that vulnerability was that that was the thing that they never embraced growing up. Like, I was always toughened that one up, you know, because I was always so feminine and also really soft by nature. So the irony of my father is like, you know, I pay his mortgage, you know, and it's it's this wig and it's this these nails and this costume (laughs) that pays for that fucking mortgage and every now and then if he acts out those lights don't get paid for about a month <laughs> and he sits in the dark <laughs> until he apologizes so like you know what I mean I, I think he's definitely seen the success that I've like accumulated over, over my years as an artist as a drag queen um he sees it but he doesn't see it and that's fine yeah you know and I think within our Pacific community there's so many hang-ups they're like this thing of he's but he's your father and I'm like yeah but he's fucking toxic like 
you know, why would I enable myself to be triggered or continue to put myself in situations that push me back like 20 years? Whenever I have a conversation, it's like, I'm happy with the relationship I have with him. But I think generally speaking, I've just gone, I've made peace with the fact that he will never be able to let go of his own fear and just embrace me as his son. Or daughter, or queen. A beautiful idea to end on, that we have to lay down our weapons, our cudgels of fear, in order to embrace and accept those we love. And if they won't love us for who we are, they shall shiver in dark, unlit rooms with empty fridges that do not hum. I come from like a family of migrants, so it's like, you know, I have a mentality that is like, you know, I need to provide for the family, but I also want want to be, I don't want to be working like this forever. And I'm conscious that my this lifestyle as a drag queen is only going to be very limited to what I can do because I'm a performer. Yeah, no one wants to come to a drag to a Queen Kong show and see me do a ballad. Like they want to see me throw myself around like a dickhead. So I don't know. The older I get, the more I'm like, my knees are getting sore. So <laughs> let's get those hundred night shows in for the next three more years and then retire. So I promised you that we'd find out what happened to Queen's sister, who gave up school to work and support Queen's career all those years ago. My sister's got two babies who are like my kids, but they were living in New Zealand forever. I hadn't lived with my family since 16, I moved out of home. So after Drag Race, I moved them over and we got a house out in Coburg in Melbourne. And so we're living under the same household and um, we're raising the kids together and, you know, we're able to be a family and under our own terms and you know, it's, it's an opportunity for me to help my sister realise what she wants to do. And, you know, she got a really good job at the airport and they're on holiday at the moment this week. They've gone to Cairns for the weekend. You know, for a few days, the kids are in the pool. I'm like, we're just living a life that we deserve and, you know, thriving, you know, based on all the sacrifices we've made. We're not struggling anymore. We're very happy and we deserve it to be. It's this kind of energy that I am hoping to bring into 2024. You have imposter syndrome? Nah. I'm very happy and I deserve to be. For Queen Kong, for all of us, a way towards happiness is by giving, by returning power to community. I just know that by the time I'm ready to put up my dancing shoes, my high heels, I'm going to feel very content about all the things that I've done and um, the impact that I've kind of made. And I see it in my niece and my nephew. I think there's something about having kids in your family that brings a new love into your life you know it's, I've always wanted to have my own kids but in some ways I've had my drag kids you know and now I've got you know nieces and nephews who are just like the reminder of why I get up and do what I do and I've seen this myself the new generation of kids are so much less fixated on policing gender they don't care me and my niece, we, we do self-care together, so we always get our nails done together. Um, I always do my nephew's hair. Like, we just have little rituals, and knowing that they don't look at this as confronting, they look at Queen Kong as, like, a superhero. Literally, they just openly embrace everything. It's the thing that I go, you know what? Things might have been hard, but it's not going to be hard for them, and that's good. That's good enough for me. This has been Seen. If you loved Queen's episode, make sure you like and share this episode and don't forget to follow because the upcoming stories are just as excellent. This podcast is hosted by me, Yumi Steins, produced by Audiocraft in collaboration with SBS. Season two of Seen was produced by Mandy Yuan and Laura Briley-Newton. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta and executive producer is Kate Montague. 
the SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple, Max Gosford and Mickey Crossman. Our podcast artwork is created by EVO Studios and music is by Yo. Scene's original concept was by Bernadette Fong Nam Wiang.